Go ahead, open your Bibles up. We're gonna be in Matthew chapter two. Matthew chapter two, verses one to 12. We're kind of in a classic Christmas text today, the visit of the wise men to Jesus. Recently, I was teaching at the academy. Uh, the academy, for those of you that don't know, is uh, our, some of our course structure that we offer for education in the Bible. And uh, I was teaching the academy on the book of Leviticus. And I asked a question in that course on that day. And the question was this. How would you define worship? How would you define worship? Well, many of us, because in modern day evangelicalism, when we talk about worship, what we're referring to is singing. Certainly that is a part of worship, that we sing together as a church family, we worship that way. But worship really is all of life. It's not just when you're singing. All of life is to be worship, whatever you're doing. Some of you might have answered this way if I asked that question. Worship is fully trusting in God. That would be accurate, right? It is worship to fully trust in God. Some of you might have said this. Worship is bringing our hearts before God in praise. That also would have been a pretty good answer. That would be a sense of what worship is, to bring our hearts before God in praise. However, if we, go back, if we were to go back to the Old Testament, frankly, if we were to go to Jesus' day, and we were to ask the question, what is worship? We would have gotten a different answer. If we were to go to Jesus' day, we, we would have got a response like this. Worship is when we bring a personal gift to God as a sacrifice to demonstrate our thanks and love of him. Worship's when we bring a personal gift to God as a sacrifice to demonstrate our thanks and love of him. Now, part of that would have been because they had a sacrificial system where they were regularly killing animals and making offerings at the temples. That's why they would have said we bring a gift to God. These gifts would have been of their own possession, something they owned, and they would have seen it as a personal sacrifice to give this gift to God as a demonstration of their love of him. Perhaps you remember the story of Cain and Abel, very fitting story for today. The story of Cain and Abel in uh, the early chapters of Genesis, Genesis chapter four, Cain and Abel were the sons of Adam and Eve. And one day, Cain and Abel bring an offering. They bring this gift to God. And Abel brought of the firstborn or the first of his flocks, okay? So he brought an animal offering. And Cain brought of his uh, um, wheat or of his harvest that he had. And the two of them brought this gift before the Lord. And we read in Genesis chapter four, verses three to five, this response. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. It's an interesting story. When you only read the text and you don't really read what's happening here, you don't look at what happens next, it's why would God only receive one and not the other? They both brought a gift. Why did he receive Abel's gift and and not Cain's gift? Feels a little unfair Well, what Cain does next reveals what the issue was. The issue was his heart. Cain rises up in anger and jealousy and rage at his brother and actually ends up killing Abel. God responds to Cain and brings justice for that death. But the problem with Cain's gift that he made to God was that he went through the motions of all the things he thought he was supposed to do. I'm supposed to bring a gift to God, so here's my gift, God. The problem was his heart was out of sync. His heart was way off. He had enough anger in his heart to murder his brother on that day. And God looked down on the sacrifice that he made and saw that the sacrifice itself was an empty shell of a sacrifice. There was no substance to it. The heart was out of sync and it was just religion without relationship. It was just going through the motions 
without a heart of thanks and praise to God. Cain's sacrifice was a begrudging act of legalism, while Abel's was a joyful act of adoration. I want to ask you, we live in a different day. We no longer bring sacrifices of lambs to a temple. Jesus is the final sacrifice that was made. No more sacrifices needed when you're a Christian. However, the idea of bringing a gift to God, of making a sacrifice of your time, not out of getting restored to God, not out of a sense of I need to earn something with God, but out of a sense of he's earned everything that could ever be earned for me on my behalf already by Jesus' death on the cross. Now I bring a gift. I bring an offering of my life and true, real sacrifices that stretch me in some way to God is a part of our worship. What gift are you bringing to God this season? In what way are, are you looking at God out of response to what he's done and saying, God, here's what I have to give you. Maybe it's not much, but this is what I have and I offer it to you. Today's passage is a classic Christmas text, like I said. It's of the Magi, the, the wise men from the East, coming to visit the baby Jesus after he's been born. And there's a number of themes that weave their way through this passage. First of all, we see themes of, a, of power and authority. We've got this, this interesting dichotomy of Herod, this kind of ruthless, tyrannical ruler, and baby Jesus, the legitimate king, in infant stage. It's fascinating to think of this ruler who's about to pass away and this new king in all of his innocence in the form of a baby. And in the midst of this contrast of Herod versus Jesus, we have these three kings from the east show up bringing gifts to Jesus. What are they doing in the birth narrative of Christ? I mean, have you ever thought about this? We've heard the story perhaps, but have you ever thought, what are three Wise men, three magi, that's kind of like off-limits religion, if you will, right? It's astrology and Eastern mysticism. What are they doing showing up in the birth narrative of the Savior of the Bible? It's an interesting question. My big idea for today, I think that captures the heart of this text, is this. Full worship always involves both a posture of the heart and a sacrificial offering. Full worship, that's what we want to do as Christians, always involves both a posture of the heart and a sacrificial worship. Let's pick the story up in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. Just read the story. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east, the term there is magi, wise men, magi, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born of the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Interesting, isn't it? All Jerusalem was troubled. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to, be, where, where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judah. For so it is written by the prophet Micah. And you, here's the prophet, here's the prophecy, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, the star that had been guiding them. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you've found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship. All right, let's pause the story there. 
we need to get our context right if we're gonna understand the full, under, the full meaning of this story. We're brought to Bethlehem, all right? Now, a little background. What's with Bethlehem? The, the story, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The prophet said that the child would be born in Bethlehem. The wise men come from the east. The magi come from the east and are directed to Bethlehem. What's the background with Bethlehem? Well, in Jesus' day, Bethlehem was kind of a small backwoods area of Israel. There wasn't really much to it. It wasn't on a map, so to speak, except for one thing. It had quite a history. Even though it was a small kind of backwoods town in Israel, King David had been born there. Now, that was King David. The greatest king in the entire Old Testament had been born in this small town Bethlehem. And the reason King David had been born there is because his great-grandparents, Ruth and Boaz, were from Bethlehem. So if you read the story of Ruth in the Old Testament, they were from Bethlehem. And so Bethlehem has played this important role throughout Israel's history. But by the time of Jesus, 400 years since the prophets had spoken, it was kind of off the map. People remember that's where David was from, but it was just a small kind of nowhere place on the map. Then in verse one, we're told that it was the days of King Herod. Now, we need to get our bearings straight with this man, try to understand him a little bit. This was a ruthless, tyrannical king, okay? A ruthless, tyrannical king. He was born in 73 BC. So Jesus, right around zero, you know, by, right around the time when BC changes to AD, the exact time, we're not exactly sure the year exactly, but Herod's about 73 years old at this moment, and he's about to die. He's not doing too well in terms of his physical health. About 40 years prior, in about 40 BC, he began, and he, he would have considered himself Jewish, although his religion is kind of like Cain's religion. It was all show on the outside, and his heart was not right with God. Now, how do we know that? What kind of show did Herod do? Well, Herod was responsible for all the, the new work that was being done on the temple, so if you remember in Jesus' day when he was, you know, when he was about 33 years old, had his ministry, Jesus would regularly be in the temple compound and he'd be looking at all the bright work. Well, the temple didn't always look that way. It actually wasn't in too good of a shape by the time Herod came to power. And then he put all this money building the temple, this beautiful building. Think of the, think of the way that other Jews would have looked at Herod. Here's this Jewish king who's building the temple up. Right? He would have been in some ways esteemed by them, although they feared him, and they knew that he was a ruthless tyrant. In his later years, he became paranoid, history tells us. He became paranoid that people were trying to kill him. And so Herod ended up killing his wife and two of his sons. On the day when uh, he, he had instructed his closest men to him that on the day he died, they were to kill 70 Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. You know why he did that? because he didn't want the day of his death to be a day of celebration in Israel because of his tyran how tyrannical he was. He wanted it to be a day of mourning. And so he had 70 random leaders selected to be killed on the day of his death so that all Israel would be mourning on the day he died. Bit of a narcissism problem. This man was insane. He was satanic, we could say pretty, pretty clearly. And he is at the start of this narrative. Context, helpful? Further, we can't get past, past Matthew chapter two, and we're not gonna get to this part of the text today, but later on in this text, when, when Herod eventually realizes that the Magi don't play his game and tell him where the child's to be born, he goes and has all the children, two years old and younger, killed in Bethlehem. 
Now, we don't know how many that is. Some estimates have it as low as 15 children because Bethlehem was a very small town. Others have it in the hundreds. What we do know is that many two-year-old boys in that day were killed because Herod was afraid of this new king that had been born. This is a terrible man. To that man come three magi from the east. Now, we don't exactly know where they're from, and they're certainly very mysterious. The term magi is actually what's underneath our translations where it says wise men. It's more likely that these men came, more than likely that they came either from Babylon or from Persia in the east. Persia, or Babylon, makes good sense, and one of the reasons is there was a very heavy Jewish population in Persia, at the, I'm sorry, in Babylon at the time. And that would, that would be one of the reasons why these wise men would have had access to the Jewish scrolls, to be able to look at, oh, there's this religion, Judaism, they would have been familiar with it, with the Jews living in Babylon at the time, and to be able to search and know about the star and to be able to know all about the Jewish background to make their way to Israel. That's why they would have been saying, when they say in this text, uh, where is he who is born king of the Jews? They were familiar with that because they came from a place where Jews had been living as part of the diaspora. They were clearly well-funded, and they likely played an important political role in whatever land they came from. Now, as readers, the Magi are a very strange addition to this story. Like I said, they were into astrology, which is a big sin in, in the God of the Bible, right? We're not supposed to be playing with magic or with you know, signs like that from the stars. We trust in God. We don't trust in arbitrary signs like these things. And yet God leads these men from the nations to come worship and bow before the king of Israel as part of the main narrative of his birth. What's God doing? Well, number one, I think he's fulfilling prophecy. If you go to Isaiah chapter six, verse six in the Old Testament, we read this. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and we'll see those are the gifts that these men brought, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 60, verse six, we have this verse where people from the nations are coming and bringing gold and frankincense and bringing praises to God. So quite literally, these men are fulfilling prophecy, but I think something even deeper is happening. Christ, if you recall, the story that, of the narrative of Jesus is that he is the healing for the nations. He is not only the savior of the Jews, but he is the savior of all the Gentiles. That's non-Jews. Just about everybody in this room, I'm looking out and I'm seeing one or two people I know happen to be ethnically Jewish that are in this room right now. Everyone else is a Gentile, meaning we associate more with the wise men than we do with the Jews when we read the Bible. We're from the nations. If you're a Gentile, a non-ethnic Jewish person, you're from outside the original covenant family that was written to Abraham. But by Jesus Christ, the nations have been grafted into the story of Abraham. And God is on a rescue mission to heal and redeem the nations, people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, and every language. That's what God is doing right now. And the seeds of that story are being planted right here in the birth narrative of Jesus, where the nations are coming to Christ to worship before his feet. God is up to something. Whenever you read the stories like this, you know, it's easy to not ask the question, why is this story in the text? What, there's only a limited amount of pages in the Bible. God didn't include every story. 
In fact, in one of the Gospels, the Gospel writer says, if every story Jesus did were to be written down and recorded, there wouldn't be enough pages in the world to, to record all the stories. So there's limited stories. Why this story? And the reason is because it's about the nations. That's what God was doing, bringing the nations to Christ. What does Herod do when he hears about these wise men that are asking where the Christ is to be born? Well, he begins to get jealous. He does what he does. This is what Herod does. And he, he begins to ask all the religious leaders in Jerusalem, where is the Christ supposed to be born? If there is a king that's being born under my jurisdiction, I want to know where he's supposed to be from. So he gathers all the religious leaders, and they say, and they quote to him Micah. Now, the gospel writer, Matthew, when he records the verse in, Ma in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6, when he records the, the prophecy here, he splices together a handful of verses. But let me read to you the entire section from Micah chapter 5. It reads this. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. You know, prophecy is an interesting thing to study. If you've never looked at the Old Testament prophets and looked at how they aligned the life of Jesus, it's worth your time to stand in awe at how God's put this book together. What do we learn from Micah chapter five? Number one, we learn the location where the Messiah was to be born, the savior of the nations. Where would he be born? Bethlehem Ephrathah. Ephrathah gives the specific Bethlehem. There were two Bethlehems in Israel. Bethlehem Ephrathah is the specific one where Jesus was born. Number two, it identifies, the larger text from Micah identifies the nature or the ontology of who this savior would be. It identifies him as, the, as from ancient of days. What does that mean? It means that this child that's born is not only a regular child. It's not like you or I that was born. His coming is from long ago. He existed before time it began. The word existed as part of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit now taking on flesh. But his being, his entity, his identity, the word existed from ancient of days, says Micah chapter 5. Don't get confused over who this child is says that he would be a ruler and a shepherd. Now we get to learn his role. He'd be a ruler. Jesus, this child, would be the king of kings. Every earthly king, every earthly governor bows down to this king, ultimately. That's what king of kings means. It doesn't just mean that he's a really great king. It means that there's no other king in the history of the world that does not get its authority from underneath his kingship. They all find their authority from his kingdom. And he's a shepherd, He's, he leads his flock. He loves his flock. He lays down his life for the flock. John chapter 10, verse 11 says, I am the good shepherd, says Jesus. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And right there in Micah chapter five, we see the nations again. He shall be great to the ends of the earth and he will be their peace. To the ends of the earth. The prophets are, are, are foretelling what was going to happen, that the gospel, when the child would be born, from the woman who was in labor, from Micah chapter five, when that child was born, he would be the ruler, the king of kings, who would ro rule over a kingdom that would expand and extend to all nations under the globe. It's quite remarkable. When you look back at human history over the last 2,000 years, is that not exactly what he's done? 
Jesus rules over a kingdom right now. He rules and reigns as we speak. And people, quite literally, from almost every nation, there are still some nations, and we are reaching them right now with the gospel. We are sending missionaries to them to reach them with the gospel. But many, most of the nations have heard the gospel and have the gospel brought to them. There's still a lot of work to do yet. The prophecy has come true. The wise men visit Jesus. Herod tells the wise men, look, Tell me where he's supposed to be from. And look, but when you go and find him, you come back to me and tell me where he was from. Why did he, why did he say that? Because he intended to kill Jesus. He doesn't like a rival power underneath his jurisdiction. Let's see what the Magi do. Verse nine. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The same star that led them from the east now moves, rises, leads them to Bethlehem. Certainly at that point, by the time the child, somewhere between six months and two years old at this point, uh, the whole town of Bethlehem would have heard the stories of the, of the shepherds who had seen the angels and, the, and known about Mary and the child that had been born. They would have known exactly what child to send these wise men to by the time they got to Bethlehem. And I love what it says about them. It says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. There's this palpable distinction being drawn between the way these wise men are thinking about the birth of this child and the way Herod is thinking about the birth of this child. Herod, outward religion, no heart, jealous, paranoid, worried, starting to scheme, get things in action. Magi, same child's born. They're also quite important people, just like Herod, but they're rejoicing exceedingly, coming ready to bring gifts to the child that's been born, king of kings. Then we discover, when they discover Mary, they go into their treasures trove that they've brought with them specifically for this purpose, and they bring out gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, a lot of speculation has been made over the years as to the purpose of these gifts and the meaning of these gifts. There have been some that have tried to draw a connection, and they've said that myrrh is actually one of the, the fragrances that was oftentimes used to embalm bodies with after they had been killed. And so there's kind of like a seed of this child, this gift itself. The, the, um, the myrrh is, is foreshadowing the death of this child. Actually, I think that might be reading into the text a little bit too much. What this is, is it's a very big gift. It's a wonderful gift for this family. It's an extremely sacrificial gift that they're bringing, and they have brought and guarded preciously for this very purpose to lay at the feet of Jesus gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What do we see here? We see their heart. They're rejoicing greatly with great joy. And the language there, it's like saturated. The English translation is a translation of the Greek. There's a lot of terms in that passage about the amount of joy that's coming out of them. It's a difficult text to actually translate because there's, there's too much joy happening in the text. All right? And then the heart is in line, and then they come bringing a gift. They make a sacrificial offering. This beautiful act of worship is complete. They're warned in a dream not to return to Herod because God's got bigger plans than to allow this child to be killed just then. And then they depart back from where they came from. 
Now, I wanna bring us back to this idea of worship. How did I define worship to start? Worship is bringing your heart and your gift in alignment before God. And I think oftentimes when we, in our modern church day, when we think about the way we worship, sometimes we so spiritualize our worship that we forget that God desires both of our heart and the gift, the reflection of our heart, the actual sacrifice that we make of a life being offered to God. These magi, these wise men, exemplify full worship, or what Charles Spurgeon used to call soul worship. They exemplify it. They're bringing both their heart and their gift. Now, I think in our day, we have two ways that we make worship a bit shallower than what the Bible calls us to, and this is very important for us. In one way, we, we neglect the heart, and we make our religion all about the, the things we do, the, the, the places we have to be, the sacrifice of time we make to be a part of the religion we're supposed to do. That's heartless worship. On the other hand, I think sometimes we make it all about the heart, there's no gift, and then we have giftless worship. Let's walk through both of those and see if either of these might be a little bit true of us today. Giftless worship, what is that? Giftless worship is also what I call sentimental worship or emotional worship. It's possible to come into a room like this and be stirred by what's happening in this room. It's possible to have an amazingly emotional experience sitting under good worship music, hearing what's happening in a church family, praying together. The, the, the Bible actually refers to that as tasting of the Spirit, that you're in the presence of the Spirit moving, and, and you can come into a place like this, or you can go to a conference, or you can even read a book, or, or have a moment with God where it's so emotionally compelling, it's so moving to your heart, and you just feel in your heart that something is happening. But if that emotional experience does not then move you to do something about your life, to change something about your life, to repent of an area that's out of line with God, to actually bring an offering to God and say, here's my life, do something with this. I'm gonna change my schedule to now be more in alignment with this emotional experience I, I experienced. If all you have is emotional experience and that's the bedrock of your faith and you're dependent on emotional experiences, you're dependent on the worship music to just be moving you in such a way, if that's it and there's no gift, there's no sacrifice of a life being given to God, there's no sacrifice of stepping into the, the issues we have in our city and, and letting your faith move you from the pews out into the streets, if it's all just emotion, that's giftless worship, and I'm telling you today, that's not worship. It's just an emotional experience. True worship must affect your will, must affect your life. Romans chapter 12, verse one. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Living lives as sacrifice to God is our spiritual worship. One of the challenges in the modern church that we have, and every church has to walk this line of doing this well, of making sure that we're bringing all of our gifts to bear but not relying solely on emotional experience, okay? One of the challenges we have is that we have been tempted to believe that what church is supposed to be is a show, is a show. And, and every church is competing. Who can put on the best show? Who's got the best band? Who's got the best lights? Who's got the best stage? Who's got the best room? And, and it can actually appeal to our emotions, 
And so you end up thinking about coming to church on a Sunday the way you would think about going to a Rolling Stones concert. And you're looking around and you're going, well, you know, I don't know. The lead electric guitarist wasn't quite as good as the lead electric guitarist over here. They didn't have a fire, fireworks show after the service, right? And it might sound silly. It's kind of what happens. And if I can just be honest with you, that over the years, we've had a number of people that have left this church for the next best show down the street. And we've had a number of people that have come to this church. And when I ask them, what well, the reason they're coming to this church is because we're the next best show down the street. <laughs> and I have to sit down with those people and I have to say, whoa, get back to your church because <laughs> this is not your church. That was your church. You got a family over there and your gifts are needed over there. And before you leave this church for the next best church, who's got the next best show and the next best room, no, this is your church. Don't you leave this place. Look at this family you're a part of. Your gifts are needed here. Why? Because the church is not an emotional experience. And if that's what you're chasing, that will run dry and your faith will not sustain you. It's not emotional. That's giftless worship. Now, what about heartless worship? Now, now we got some stuff to talk about here. Heartless worship. Heartless worship, on the other hand, is what I call religiosity. Religiosity is when you go through all the motions of sacrificial living, at least outwardly, doing all the stuff that good Christians are supposed to do. We attend church on Sundays. We give financially towards the church. We go to our small group. Maybe you even volunteer once a month at Bread of Life, serving downtown with our homeless ministry that reaches out to folks in the streets. And you're doing all the things that you're supposed to do that make you appear on the outside like a good Christian. Kind of like Cain, kind of like Herod. This is possible to do all the things you're supposed to do. Build temples, right, Herod? Make the offering, Cain. And yet the heart's wrong. There's no actual heart with God happening inside of you. Herod's a great example of this. Building a temple outwardly. All the things you're supposed to be doing. Modern examples of this. If you're coming to church and hearing the beautiful news of the gospel week in, week out, and there's very little heart in your presence here, there's a problem. If you're coming week in, week out, I get it. Sometimes you have a Sunday where it's like you come to church and you're thinking about something else. I, I understand that. That shouldn't happen that often. This is the gathering of the saints. We, 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 where's my communion meal? I lost it. I have a communion meal. You took my communion meal, Kevin. We're taking the communion meal together. This is not a light thing. This is supposed to stir your soul. You come into this place week in, week out, and it's just kind of go through, you know, it's like you're a cartoon going through the motions of things. No emotion. No, no heart behind what God's done for you to rescue you from hell. I don't understand that. You go through singing the hymns. We're singing these hymns. And really, and, and honestly, I, I want this to be convicting. I want you to feel the conviction of this. But, but if when you sing, it's something like this, amazing grace, how sweet. If we were to turn the volume down, and that's what was coming out of your mouth over the long haul, there is a problem there. There is a problem there. I get it. Singing in public is embarrassing. I'm not a good singer, but the good news is there's a lot of voices and no one else can really hear your voice. This is between you and God. And if you got God and you got Jesus Christ giving his life for you to have your sins forgiven, I don't know how to not respond to that with, without doing this. 
Men, I just want you to know, one of the instructions you as men have in the New Testament is to raise holy hands. Men, women also, this is for you. I'm just letting you know, the scriptures actually command the men in the church to raise holy hands in worship. Men, where are you? And the point of that is not to do the religious show, because you can do this and be a show. The point of it is that how can the hands stay here during worship or here? I, Jesus died for me. They've got to be here if the words I'm singing are true. How, how can we take these elements and, and not have a, a, a soul-stirring reality of the goodness of, of feeding on Christ He's, he's bread and he's wine, just as bread and wine is, is, is necessary. Maybe it's necessary to sustain a, a healthy, good, full life. We need to feed on the goodness of Christ, and this is a sign and a symbol for us of, of feeding and nourishing our lives on Christ. How can we do this and just go through the motions? Content to pray with our mouths and our throats, but not with our bellies. Groans. It's possible to have heartless worship. And actually, I think that's probably more true of the modern church than the giftless worship. True worship is when our hearts and our gifts come into alignment with each other. We bring them both. God wants our whole life. These, these wise men, they're the ticket to getting this thing right. You, you do whatever you gotta do. You, you rent some camels and you make the trip. <laughs> And you load up on your back your treasure and then you come lay it before the king. I don't know what that looks like in your life, but if the heart's not there, don't, don't leave today before there's repentance that takes place and you get your heart in the, right, in the right place with God. And if the gifts aren't there, don't leave today without the Holy Spirit saying, I have been calling you to make a sacrifice for quite a while now. Now, I wanna pause and I don't want to preach an entire sermon on this Sunday without thinking well about everything I shared with the Lamb family and what's happening in our church. What does this mean in, in the reality of hardship and trial? How, how does this text speak into this week in our church family with the murder of a father of somebody that we love? I, I almost hesitated to include this part in the sermon because I, I don't want my words to be pithy or not deep enough. And I know I'm going to Bridgeport where Kenson will be and Susan and their children will be in the room. And I've uh, been praying over this. And so I think perhaps the best thing for me to do is to repeat words that Kenson has preached many times from this pulpit. Uh, Kenson has been my teacher on this. One of the great blessings for me as a pastor being part of Park Community Church is that I get to sit underneath great preaching regularly. Many pastors don't get that but I get to sit underneath Kenson Lamb. I'm gonna share some things Kenson's shared with me over the, over the years. Full worship of both your heart and your gift is needed, especially in seasons of trial. Why? Because full worship does two things for you. On the one hand, it gives you a bigger perspective of God. Sometimes when we're suffering and we're going through trials and hardship and we're, we're wondering where God is, we begin to shrink God's vision of who he is and what we actually need we need to restore a right vision of God because when you shrink God, if your trial's this big and you've made God this big, then your trial looks overwhelming. But if your trial's this big and then you come and, and you allow full worship to give you a much larger view of who God is, 
then your trial is put in perspective for how God is and how good he is, that his promises are true. And it doesn't make the trial go away. It just, the perspective shifts, doesn't it? And so full worship, one of the fruits of full worship is it expands you. It gives you a bigger vision of God. We must bring our worship to God in the midst of trial. I don't, what, how else could we respond? But number two, communal worship reminds the soul that you're not alone. Kenton shared this with us a number of times. When you come and you're hurting, as all of us do at some point, we come into rooms like this and we're holding back tears or we're holding back the hardships of what's going on and you stand in this room and you're having a hard time finding the heart and the voice to sing. But the saints around you who are filled by the Spirit are singing their hearts out and raising their hands. What happens is that the words and the songs themselves and the way the Spirit moves in the room ministers to you. And, and the word I've been using, is it, it creates like a warm blanket that comes over you where, where the saints are sustaining you, where you can't find the strength to worship. They lift you up as Moses' arms were lifted up. This is another reason why we must sing loud because there's people in this room that need to hear, need to be ministered to as you're worshiping the Lord. And so communal worship, coming together, one of the tools that God most strongly uses to lift our arms and, and restore us and, and heal us is the worship of the saints around us and our family around us and our brothers and sisters that we're doing life around us coming together to lift us up together. I want to close this by asking you, what gift are you bringing to the Lord today? What gift are you bringing to the Lord? We, we, we're in a season of gift giving, and you're going to be giving gifts to everybody and God's inviting you to, to actually take stock of your life and say, what, what, what's my sacrificial offering here? Where, where, am I, where am I sacrificing my time, my talent, my money, my treasure, my, whatever it is, where am I giving sacrificially out of an overflow of God working in my heart? The question I'm really asking is, where is your worship lacking? Where, where can we learn from these wise men today? That when your heart is rejoicing, and there, there, it, literally there's too many words in the sentence to say how good it is, what, what, what Jesus has done for you, <laughs> where is that coming out of your life and stretching you? I want to invite you into, into full worship of both the heart and the sacrificial gift today. Heavenly Father, I, uh, I pray over our, our time today and our, our pancake breakfast today, God, that you would bless our time. God, that you would be worshiped that we would honor you in the way we think about you and the way we love you in the way we do this thing called church well. We love you. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the blood of Jesus shed for us that we could have our sins forgiven. And we thank you for the giving of the Holy Spirit that unites us together. I pray in Jesus' name. Let me invite you to stand in worship. I know you received the communion elements when you came in. We're actually not taking communion today. <laughs> and so there will be a box that you can deposit these over by the pancakes when you head over that way. But will you stand and will you worship with us one last song before the service ends?